Uh, all right, we're in Matthew chapter 26. If you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your tablet or phone. Matthew chapter 26. Our text this morning is verses 17 through 30. The topic, Jesus shares the Passover dinner with his disciples as the final lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The title of our message, Sinner, Sinner, Passover Dinner. Let's have a word of prayer. What? (laughs) Father, thank you for our morning and the privilege, the real privilege, Lord, of having the completed word of God open in our laps, on our devices. We're able to read it, Lord, and study it. We thank you, Lord, for the country we live in and for the situation we find ourselves in. We also consider it a responsibility, Lord, to learn from you and then to go and be doers of the word, to help other Christians, to lead folks to Christ, to think in a big world vision, Lord, of how each of us can be used to minister the grace of God to family, friends, and to those in the uttermost parts of the earth. We thank you for this text. I pray that we would uh, be led by your spirit through it, that no comments that I make would be confusing or off track, uh, and uh, Lord, that your word itself, just the very words of scripture, would be alive and powerful in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Judas is making a comeback in terms of its popularity as a boy's baby name. Looking at applications for Social Security cards, exactly zero babies were named Judas from 1940 through 1968, at least as, part of, as far as applications for Social Security were concerned. Then in 1969, there was a spike as five applications for Judas were received. 2008 was a record-breaking year. 21 applications for a boy named Judas were processed. Now, you probably won't ever meet any of the 2008 Judases. The 21 applications were only 0.001% of the total applications. While we're on the subject of baby names, I discovered that certain names are banned in certain countries. Both Alicia Silverstone and Kate Winslet would have had to find a name other than Bear for their baby boys if they had been living in Malaysia, where the names of all animals, fruits, and vegetables are banned. So you can't name your kid lettuce or anything like that. For you Henry or Harry Potter fans, Hermione is one of the names forbidden in the Mexican state of Sonora. It's an effort to prevent possible bullying. According to CNN, in Germany, rejected baby names depend on gender. If you can't tell the gender of the child by the first name, then it's a no-go. Denmark, parents must choose from a government-approved list of 7,000 names. If they want to go off list, they have to get permission from a local church. About 1,100 names are reviewed each year, and 15 to 20% are rejected, mostly for odd spellings. Now, getting back to Judas, one reporter wrote, people don't attend Benedict Arnold High School and they don't name their child Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus, eventually surrendering him over to the religious authorities who were seeking to kill him. Too bad for Judas, he didn't surrender himself to Jesus. As we work through this text, I'd like to keep that distinction in mind, surrendering rather than surrendering to Jesus. And I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, why surrender Jesus and live for yourself? Number two, why not surrender to Jesus and live for him? 
Verses one through 25 will talk about surrendering Jesus. Now, obviously the context here is the annual Passover. Passover dinner commemorated the sacrifice of a lamb in Egypt when the people of Israel were freed from slavery. They smeared the blood of the sacrificed lamb on their doorposts as a signal to God that he should pass over their houses when he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. It was the 10th and final plague upon Egypt after which Pharaoh let God's people go. Passover is observed on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's the month Nisan, beginning in the evening. This would be Jesus' final Passover dinner, or was it a Passover dinner, that is? Because according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples on the day, quote, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. However, according to the Gospel of John, he ate the meal the day before because he was crucified on the day the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. And so which was it? Well, there are at least three possible solutions. First of all, Jesus' meal with his disciples may have been a specially arranged pre-Passover meal. For example, do you always celebrate Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday of November? I've had it earlier, and I've had it later, depending upon circumstances. And so it's not that unusual. The problem, however, with this suggestion is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell you that it was on the calendar date on which the feast was being held. Now, second solution is that the dinner may have been a farewell fellowship meal that was unrelated to Passover, eaten the evening before Passover. I came across information from a Jewish source that said it was customary for a rabbi to have a final celebratory meal with his disciples once their formal training with him was concluded. That certainly fits the context. This was Jesus' last night with his disciples before his crucifixion. The problem with this solution, however, is that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, since both of those theories seem problematic, there is a third. For a long time, scholars were suggesting that different groups among the Jews, such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually use slightly different calendars. It was hard to prove until along came the Dead Sea Scrolls and they revealed to scholars that at the time of Jesus, there really were two different calendars in use. Thus, they could celebrate the Passover on different consecutive days. If you think a two-calendar thing is kind of silly and no one would do that, imagine living in Indiana. The location of Indiana at the boundary of the eastern and central time zones has led the state being split between two time zones. You could live in one time zone and work in another. It's why Chicago wrote their song, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? <laughs> and so you read stuff like that and you think, okay, nobody uses two different calendars. And then you go to Indiana and you don't know what time it is. And, and this is the 21st century in America. Now the two calendar thing is probably the correct answer. It accounts for all the variables, and we know it was in effect in the first century. We know that historically. Plus, it has massive uh, physical and practical advantages. For one thing, it gave the priests in the temple an additional day in which to sacrifice the lambs. With tens of thousands, some people say hundreds of thousands of pilgrims swelling the regular Jewish population, sacrificing all those lambs was no small task. 
You know, when you hear these numbers of how many pilgrims there were, you, th you have to think, how could they kill that many lambs in that period of time? Well, they did it, but they may have had two separate periods of time to do it as the various pilgrims observed two separate Passovers. And for another thing, the two dates would keep the two groups somewhat separated, which would keep a lid on tensions between the groups. These groups didn't get along. Pharisees, Sadducees, and their followers, and so it was better that they came at different times. Jesus and the disciples would have considered their Passover day to have started at sunrise on Thursday and end at sunrise on Friday. The Jewish leaders who arrested and tried Jesus, being mostly priests and Sadducees, would consider their Passover day to begin at sunset on Thursday and end at sunset on Friday. And this explains how Jesus could legitimately celebrate a Passover meal with his disciples and yet still be sacrificed as the Passover lambs were being slain. Now, it's important that Jesus Christ's death synchronizes with the death of Passover lambs because he was fulfilling the symbolism as God's final lamb. And so Jesus planned the earlier Passover so that the types of the slaying of the lamb would be fulfilled not only as to the event itself, but as to the actual specific time. And so let's get into it in verse 17. Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now there was a definite air of secrecy surrounding this last Passover. Judas was looking for a time and a place to surrender Jesus to the authorities, so Jesus kept the location of the meal completely secret until the last minute. It must have created a little stress for the disciples. Imagine if you didn't know where you'd be celebrating Thanksgiving until the day itself, and yet you were responsible for preparing all the details of the meal. It, Thanksgiving is stressful enough you don't, it, it, without people saying, hey, let's get together for Thanksgiving, but we're not gonna tell you until late that morning. So just be ready to travel with your turkey and your creamed corn and your apple pies and all of that, and uh, I'll let you know when, you know, it's on a need to know basis and you don't need to know. <laughs> Husbands don't try that. Verse 18, and he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. If you've ever tried to book a venue for a reception or some big celebration, you know that places are super hard to find, especially uh, when there's a big event or a holiday going on, and they cost you an arm and a leg. Yet the owner of this upper room had kept it empty and available. Maybe God had given him a dream or spoke to him in a vision. We don't know why, but he was obedient to let his valuable real estate sit vacant waiting on the Lord. And so I think that's kind of a precious little insight into uh, God working on both ends of this situation. We learn in the other gospels that Peter and John were the disciples sent on this mission. Mark and Luke in their gospels say they would be able to identify the certain man because he would be carrying a pitcher of water, a chore normally reserved for women. You might think, oh great, yeah, that, that's gonna be easy. Well, you have to walk through town swollen with pilgrims and find the one guy 
the named Waldo, uh, who's, you know, carrying a water pitcher. And so you have to think, if I'm these guys, I'm thinking, Lord, if you know that the room is gonna be ready, and if you know this guy that's gonna be carrying the water pitcher, why don't you just give us the address? Wouldn't that just be a lot easier? Isn't it always a lot easier? Wouldn't it be easier? Most of the things the Lord has done in your life, wouldn't it be a lot easier a different way? Almost everything the Lord's ever done in my life would have been easier my way. Just tell me. Just let me know right now. You know the address. You know where we're going. No, it's just, I'm gonna get, I'll get you there. It's all an Abraham thing. Abraham, leave, and you're going to the promised land. Yeah, where is that on my GPS? Yeah, it's nowhere. Just go, left or right. Ah, left. Now right, now straight. I mean, it's crazy, but that's the way the Lord is, and so this is stressful. Even with all those clues, Jesus wasn't making this easy. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. When you're watching a movie or television show, do you read the opening credits? I don't, I can't help myself from reading the opening credits, you know, and it's, it's, and what you'll notice is that there's always 12 producers. Have you ever noticed that? There's the producer, the assistant producer, the executive producer, the executive executive producer, the out-of-town producer. Uh, There's all kinds of producers. And then finally, what do you get to? The director. And once the director's name comes up, you're done reading. And, And everything goes off the screen so you can watch because the director is the most important guy. You could probably name a dozen Hollywood directors even though they're not in the movies. You know, movies are always billed, you know, such and such movies starring so-and-so and directed by, and you think, wow, that guy's a genius. And so the director is that important. Follow Jesus' direction. Don't worry that you don't have enough time or information. Don't argue that men don't carry pitchers of water or that they're gonna be hard to find. Just follow directions and love it when a plan comes together because that's what happened here. Verse 20, when evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I can't think of a more compassionate way of presenting a crucial piece of information. The 11 disciples who wouldn't betray Jesus needed to know that what was about to happen was definitely part of the plan and that the whole Jesus thing hadn't gone off the rails. And so the Lord had to tell them, but he did it in such a way so as to not embarrass Judas or to call him out, still giving him the opportunity to repent and not lose face with the other boys. Verse 22, and they were exceedingly sorrowful and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? This to me is stunning. These are the guys who always misunderstood Jesus. These are the guys who got upset when kids were around. These were the guys who were bothered by the interruption of a sick woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment. They fought over who would be the greatest in his kingdom, ignoring his predictions of his impending death. Suddenly, without any warning, they responded spiritually. Instead of blaming one another, they each, except for Judas who knew better, wondered if it could be them. This tells me at least two things. Number one, even someone who is normally spiritually dull can have a deep moment with Jesus. You never know when somebody that you're talking to or witnessing to is going to maybe understand something spiritual that you've said to them, so keep doing it. And number two, even if I think I'm spiritually sharp, 
I ought to constantly and thoroughly be willing to examine myself. Lord, is it I? Is a great question to ask yourself as you're reading the Bible, not just in the context of a disobedience, but even more so in the context of desiring to obey the Lord. If you read something that is a call to action, ask, Lord, is it I who you are calling in this way? Ask, Lord, is it I you are speaking to today to give or to, pra uh, to pray or to fast? During and after every Bible reading or every Bible study, ask, Lord, is it I in this text? And how are you speaking to me? Verse 23, he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, this isn't just a way of saying, watch this, I'm gonna show you who it is, it's the one who dips. I think Jesus meant this to emphasize, I'm gonna be betrayed by somebody sitting at this table who I have shared fellowship with for the past three and a half years. Not so much to identify Judas as it was to just say this is momentous, this is monumental. And uh, as, I, I've, as I've gotten older, I, I've been crying in movies more. I don't know if that's something, I don't mind, I, I don't think it's losing my manhood to admit that, but I just tear up now, cartoons, uh, movies, even when it's not sad, I start crying, thinking how sad that it's not sad. But anyway, and so, you know, the Disney movies, when you know the hero, the movies I've seen already, I, I just start crying, and so I'm a little bit more sensitive to, to crying, and I just see Jesus, it's not in the text, I'm making this up, so if you wanna call me a heretic, that's fine. I think the Lord cried when he said this. You wanna know who it is? It's somebody that I've been with for three and a half years, that's who it is. It's one of you, it's, it's one of my closest disciples. It's somebody that I would call a friend. Somebody that even now I'm reaching out to and, and, and desiring that they would come into the kingdom of God. That's who it is. This is a really tender moment for the Lord. This isn't just a prophetic tick on the timeline. This isn't, oh yeah, we're, okay, yeah, we're at the point where I get uh, uh, betrayed. Then we're going out to the garden, you guys are gonna fall asleep. Uh, then this is gonna happen. This is real for Jesus as a man, and, and it hurts. Any, the way any betrayal would hurt anyone only one million times more because he was the son of God. Imagine if you were Jesus and you'd spent three and a half years living with a guy, and in the end it had no effect on saving him. In fact, he didn't just leave, he became your enemy and turned you into the authorities. We would say today of someone like this, maybe they need better witnessing skills or a few more tools, but that's not true. I hate to, uh, to draw encouragement from a negative, but if people rejected Jesus while they could see and feel and hear him, it shouldn't surprise us when they reject him today as we are sharing him. Verse 24, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This is more amazingness. Here we learn that God's ultimate will cannot be thwarted by man. He will accomplish what he has planned by his providence. But he does it in such a way as to never violate a man's free will, still holding each man responsible and accountable for all of his actions. It's amazing, this is an amazing verse of scripture. Here we're confident that as we teach about the end times and we say this is gonna happen and that's gonna happen and that's gonna, that it absolutely will happen because God is working in history to do it but he's doing it in a way that never violates free will so that each person can be held personally accountable and responsible. 
I've said more than once that Jesus held out to Judas the opportunity and real possibility of his repentance. Judas was not a predestined automaton. There was no reason for him to think that he had to do this, uh, but he did. Verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. Now, Judas had to do what all the other disciples were doing and ask if it was him. But notice, when the other 11 guys asked, Lord, is it I? Judas didn't call Jesus Lord. He called him his rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Jesus was a great teacher, but if he's not your Lord, you can't hope to understand, let alone follow any of his teachings. They require the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and for that you'll need to be born again. Judas would get up and go out and betray the Lord, surrendering him to the religious authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane. He surrendered Jesus rather than surrendering to Jesus. I won't try to get all sensational and suggest that we can be Judases. I will suggest this. When I know what Jesus wants me to do or to be and I refuse in favor of my own wisdom and desires, I am surrendering him. For example, I'm surrendering him in the sense that I won't be enjoying his sweet, intimate fellowship. I don't normally quote from the message version of the Bible, but in 2 Corinthians 6.15, it says, does Jesus go strolling with the devil? I like that picture. The answer is no. And so when I'm sinning, when I'm disobeying God, I am not in fellowship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I lose my salvation, but I'm not fellowshipping with him when I disobey him and when I sin, I surrender that fellowship for that period of time. I'm also surrendering Jesus when I go my own way and ignoring his power over sin. He's given me the Holy Spirit to dwell within me. You and I can always say yes to God and no to sin. Why surrender that power to your sworn enemies, the devil, the flesh, and the world? It makes no sense except that sin is pleasurable for a season. Just know that in the end, sin brings death. And so don't surrender Jesus. Instead, surrender to him. When the Jews today sit down to celebrate Passover, they use a book known as the Haggadah. Well, I can't pronounce it. Mark got it on his phone in between, but I still can't pronounce it. It's Haggadah. Haggadah. Inagata Davida. It's something like that. <laughs> it's from the bigger book, Inagata Davida. But anyway, I'm going to call it the Haggadah. 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 It's this book which literally means the telling. I feel like I'm saying Haggadah when I say it. That's why. <laughs> So the title refers to the book's purpose, the telling. It's to provide an ordered framework through which the story of Passover is told during the meal. The celebration is sometimes called a Passover Seder. The word Seder, S-E-D-E-R, means order or order of service. And so there's a Passover order of service. Uh, telling the story of Passover is, of course, one of the fundamental purposes of the celebration as stated in Exodus 13, 8, where we read, you shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I went forth from Egypt. What you need to know, or think about at least, practically everything in this Haggadah was recorded after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In fact, some Jewish sources say it could not have been written before 170 AD. And so if you're looking for it as an authority on what Jesus did the night of his Passover, it's, you have to be a little skeptical because it didn't exist when Jesus was celebrating the Passover and it may not have existed for over 100 years later. 
As far as the Bible is concerned, the only details as to what to eat and the Seder of the service are in Exodus 12, where the lamb is described, uh, unleavened bread is to be eaten, bitter herbs are to be there, and you're to eat with sandals and your belt girded and a staff in your hand. But beyond that, there are no other uh, symbols given, there are no, no other order given, it's, it's all very uh, silent. Uh, now, we don't know exactly how Jesus and his disciples went through their Passover meal. They didn't have this book, and a lot of things you might see at a modern reenacted Passover Seder may or may not have been part of the Last Supper. They may have. I'm not saying they weren't. I've been to Passover Seders. Uh, I've been to uh, Christian reenactments. I've been to a Jewish one, uh, and they're different, but we don't know. So when people say, oh, this, is the, this cup would come out and this would happen and they would hide this and they would do that, we don't know. The Bible is silent on those things. Those are the traditions of men that maybe didn't get added till much later. So we need to be careful. What is important is what we can actually see in the Bible, not what we think were the traditions of the day. And those are in verse 26 through 28. As they were eating, and it turns out it was after they ate, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for uh, many for the remission of sins. Again, Jesus did this after the customary Passover, giving it as a new celebration rather than simply changing the meaning. He wasn't telling us to continue to observe Passover annually with these new symbols. He was telling us to observe the Last Supper it had become on account of him being the final Passover lamb, and we are free to partake of these elements as often as we like. This symbolic act is the clearest statement of Jesus, that Jesus ever made of the redemptive purpose of his death. The sharing of bread and the wine are tokens that his coming death was sufficient to provide forgiveness for all mankind and they were effective in removing the sins of those who believe. We understand the elements of bread and wine to be symbols and the celebration to be a memorial. That is, there is no literal or mystical transformation of the elements into Jesus' body and blood. The bread is bread, the wine is wine, they represent his body and his blood that would be given on Calvary for the remission of sins. Now I said wine, so why do we commonly use grape juice? Because it doesn't matter in this sense. It isn't about the elements, it's rather about the spiritual meaning of the elements. When we become preoccupied with the elements, the Lord's Supper takes on a superstitious aspect as if we're not doing it right. There is something about the Lord's Supper that brings out the superstitious nature of man in thinking, is this the right way? Are we being reverent enough? You know, those kinds of things. And, and, and if we're gonna argue about the particular elements, again, well, let, let me say this. We, knew, we know that they used unleavened bread. That was a very important part of the a feast and the festival. And we do know that the wine was definitely fermented, but according to traditional Jewish writings, and I'm not making this up, I researched it, the wine, certainly the wine the Gentiles drank, and most likely the wine that the Jews drank, in fact, Jewish sources say this, was diluted 
three to, to one or six to one water. And so the wine that Jesus drank was fermented, but it would be diluted uh, and would hardly have any alcohol content whatsoever. Uh, so if you wanna have wine uh, for communion uh, with unleavened bread, knock yourself out. That's fantastic. I don't have a problem with it. But we're gonna serve grape juice uh, because it really doesn't matter and we avoid a lot of things. And by the way, I didn't have time to research this. I, I'm, I challenge somebody here to research this for me. Find out if they were able to produce white wine in uh, the first century. Because we assume it was red wine because of the color of blood, right? And people have said, oh, you know, you have to use red wine or, or red grape juice. What if it was white wine? Now you're gonna think, Gene's a heretic. All I'm saying is it doesn't say he drank red wine. A pin, well, I don't even know the names of wines, but it was a nice Chablis to go after dinner. But uh, you know, we don't know, so figure that out. Again, it's not the elements, it's what they represent, and that is the new covenant. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is promised in the Old Testament. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, behold the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant, as Jeremiah presents it, is the forgiveness of sin accompanied by the dynamic power to live a life pleasing to God. Instead of trying to keep the law outwardly and failing, you are empowered to keep the law inwardly and you can walk with the Lord. It's what we would commonly call being born again. This new covenant was for Israel. It's begun to be fulfilled by believers today, Jew and Gentile in what we call the church age. It will find its ultimate fulfillment at the second coming of Jesus when all Israel is saved. Verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The kingdom Jesus is referring to is the kingdom of heaven on earth, the thousand year kingdom, the millennial kingdom that he's gonna establish at his second coming. It's precious to me that Jesus has taken a vow not to drink wine until he returns. It's his way of telling us that his joy will not be full until we can all be together. Spouse, do you ever, has your spouse ever gone and done something super fun and left you in the dust? And you've said, no, it's okay, go ahead, you, you can do it. I, I wouldn't want to keep you from doing this. And you're thinking, you would do this without me? What kind of a weirdo are you? That's uh, just a thing, you know, I'm thinking. But this is the idea. Jesus says, guys, I am not going to drink again until we're together. That's how much I love you. I, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that until we get together. You remember the Crosby, Stills, Nash song? Love the one you're with. I'm sorry that I remember it, but do you remember that song? <laughs> If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Do, 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 do. It was, it was and, and you know what, terrible advice. 
Awful advice. But sometimes I think as Christians, well, Jesus is absent, and so we're awaiting his return. We want to love the world we're in. And if you can't be with the one you love, love the world you're in. And, and we, need to, we need to maybe fast for a few more times and, and from some other things, even things that we have liberty to do. Remembering that Jesus said, hey, I could be drinking wine, but I'm not going to. And I'm not just talking about alcohol, but I, you know, Jesus said, I'm gonna fast from this because I wanna do it with you. And you can say, well, Lord, I, there's some liberties that I could be taking advantage of, but I'm gonna fast from them because I wanna be with you. And, and so just think about it. Uh, look at verse 26 and notice the words gave, take, and eat. Gave tells us that the forgiveness of sin and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift. It must be given, never earned. It is received, not achieved. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you are saved. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. But it must be personally received. Jesus says a person must take the gift of salvation by making a willful decision. To take something means you can refuse it. Now, how's it possible if we're sinners? Well, God's grace comes before freeing our will, enabling us to choose. And so salvation is all of grace, but Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and he meant lifted up on the cross, crucified for the sins of the world, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's, he certainly didn't mean that all men would be saved. That's universalism, and that's not true. But he said, by the cross, God is able to draw all men. In other words, send them the grace of God to operate on their heart enough to free their will so that they can receive or reject the offer of salvation. And then eat indicates that there is nourishment and ongoing growth in this new covenant life. Gave, take, eat. It's a great summary of what is going on at the Last Supper uh, in terms of what Jesus offers. Now I'm trying to capture all this by asking why not surrender to Jesus and live for him? There is that initial surrender when you realize you're a sinner and you repent of your sins and turn to God and then we are to go on being surrendered to him by obedience to his word, walking by faith, asking, Lord, is it I? Let's pray.